Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of interviews with or conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 600 of them now, and if this is new to you and you'd like to check out previous ones, please go to batgap.com, B-A-T-G-A-P, and look under the past interviews menu. This program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website, and there's also a donations page which explains other alternatives. My guest today is Diederik Walsack. Uh, welcome, Diederik. Thank you, Rick. It's a, an absolute honor to be oh, here. It's an honor to have you, and it's been good getting to know you over the previous week, you know, listening to your book and uh, listening to some other talks and, and interviews you've given. Diedrich was born in 1942 in a tiny village south of what we now know as Jakarta, Indonesia. The first three and a half years of his life were spent in Japanese prisoner of war camps during World War II, and it was here that he formed most of his core beliefs, beliefs which he thought were his actual character. After some 50 years of self-loathing, alcohol, and drug abuse, he decided that there had to be a better way. It was time to change his mind at the deepest levels. Through a course in miracles and attitudinal healing, he developed a radical forgiveness process, which allows him to transform the self he hated into a capitalist self, whose only function is to extend love. Choose Again is a six-step process, and it's also the name of his charitable society, it operates a healing center in Costa Rica, and he gives talks and teaches workshops in many places around the world. I think it would be interesting to start with some embellishment or elaboration on your personal story, because it was really more extremely traumatic, I would say, than most people's are, at least most most of us listening to this probably, and it's relevant to what you're doing now, actually, and it's inspiring that you overcame such a traumatic childhood to end up where you have ended up, although nobody ever ends up because we're all still works in progress. But take us back. What happened? The reason I used the story of my early youth is not to collect or gather sympathy or, oh my God, what a way to start your life, but purely to illustrate that it doesn't matter that whatever happens in your youth, you've had the same experience I've had. Everybody's had the same experience. It just has takes a different form. And what society tends to do and what, what mainstream therapy tends to do is look at the form and say, this is a trauma. To me, everything that happens, whatever it is, is open to interpretation. And the eye that does the interpreting is either the ego eye, in which case it is a trauma, in, in which case I will suffer the rest of my life and I'm justified to be a drunk and an addict, etc., or it is the unchangeable, uh, eternal, loving self, the loving I, which looks on everything, whatever it is, and asks a simple question, and that is, what is this for? And so what I learned to do in my healing, which, which as you just so aptly indicated, is absolutely a work in progress, is to learn to ask that question consistently, what is this for? And no matter what, what it is. So whatever comes up, that has become the key question. Okay. What I inferred from what you just said is that 
in a way, there are no accidents. Things aren't random or arbitrary. God is not playing dice with the universe. There is a sort of a significance to things, even horrific things, that there are potentially lessons to be learned from just about everything. Is that a fair statement? Exactly, exactly. And it really doesn't matter what it is, because what my work entails and teaches is to go to the essence of what's being offered, not the symptoms. So when we get clients at the center that have uh, a variety of symptoms, whether it's depression or ADHD or bipolar or just a difficult marriage, it doesn't matter. Those are the symptoms. And what we work with is to go underneath the symptoms and go into the core belief that actually chooses these symptoms. And it chooses the symptoms for us to say, there's some work to be done here. Look, here's proof. And the proof is evidence for core beliefs. So at an early age, in my case, I developed a quite a delightful range of harsh, negative, self-destructive core beliefs. And they were formed by looking around my environment. So between the ages of zero and five, six, seven, eight, whatever happens around you is a reflection of who you think you are. It becomes who you are. So if your mom and dad are gloriously happy 24 hours a day, clearly you turn out to be a wonderful little person because there is your proof. If your mom or your dad is depressed or they drink or they have other issues, they get angry, they're irritable, that is your fault. Now, of course, when you put yourself in a concentration camp setting where uh, you're only surrounded by, and this sounds racist, but it's what it was, by white women, and the camp guards are Japanese, who are brutal, who show absolutely no mercy for the inhabitants of the camps, for the women, and as a matter of fact, are intent on exterminating them over a period of time, then that becomes your impression. And so years and years ago, probably about 18 or 19 years ago, fairly early on in my work, when anybody brought up the subject of the camps, I couldn't talk about it, and I couldn't figure out why. My throat would constrict which puzzled me because I thought I'd done all the forgiveness work that I needed to do. And what I meant by that, which I know now but didn't realize then, that the forgiveness work I'd done was a a false forgiveness. It was a forgiveness for the Japanese. But it had nothing to do with the Japanese. The work that I have to do and that uh, we teach is that the forgiveness is for myself. And that forgiveness is for the belief that I hurt my mother. Or the forgiveness is for the belief that uh, whatever I saw in the camps was my fault. Now, that insane belief, because you can only label it insane, uh, was made abundantly clear in a holotropic breathing that I did about 20 years ago. After five minutes of going into it, I started to howl uh, with unbelievable pain. And I saw very clearly that everything I had seen was my fault. But not only that. All the camps in the world were my fault. And a step further, the Second World War was my fault. And again, that sounds crazy, but it is what we all do. Unless, if we take the time to go to dive a little deeper, we'll come up with these primal guilts, these original guilt that all of us have, every single one of us. And so again, I want to make really clear that I'm not fishing for sympathy with the concentration camp story, I'm only using it to demonstrate how universal it is, because it makes no difference. So are you saying that when traumatic stuff happens to children, 
it's almost a universal tendency for them to blame themselves for the fact that it's happening. So all those kids in Syrian refugee camps right now, or, you know, we can, we don't want to have to drag through all the horrible things that are happening in the world to people, but pretty much it's a human trait or, or tendency to just blame oneself for those things. Exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you linked it to, say, Syria, because what happens then, once a child, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, five, six-year-old, has taken on all that guilt, it will have to project it. And then what do you have? You have a terrorist. Because what is a terrorist is someone who expresses his guilt in an aggressive fashion. But it's his guilt he's expressing. Until we recognize that, we think he's fighting for freedom. But he's not. He's expressing his self-hatred. Are there exceptions to this? I mean, are there some kids who are somehow born psychologically healthy and they don't screw it up from the start by misappropriating, you know, the circumstance to being their fault? Well, there may be, but they wouldn't come to me for help. So so I I can't really tell. I would imagine that is a possibility, but I don't see it. I don't see it because the the examples that I've come across, which 99% of the time are not hugely dramatic. Mm. They're tiny little incidents that may surprise you, but the most common one is my father or mother was five minutes late picking me up from preschool. That's it. At that moment, I make up my beliefs. At that moment, my core beliefs are formed. They then, of course, start solidifying with more evidence. But that's when it happens. So at that moment, I decide, obviously, they don't love yeah. me. Well, like that happened to oh, you. Yes, you yeah. dropped your little toy truck in two feet of water, and your father wouldn't go in and fish it out for you. And that formed a core belief that had a major impact on your life. Precisely. And it still plays on occasion, it, it, but now it's funny because I'm on, I'm hip to yeah. it, but, but it, it still comes up from time to time. Within what age range do we form most of these beliefs? Between zero and eight or in utero and eight. Now, the in utero part I always had trouble with because I have clients who in a holotropic breathing or in a process would go back to a memory of something that happened in utero and I always thought, well, it's... That's a little woo-woo and a little out of my range. But but then I had an experience where that became clear. This was an event at the center where on a Sunday afternoon where everything went wrong. You can't imagine crazy enough, but it it was everything was going absolutely sideways. And I had a feeling that I had not experienced before. Now, I know enough, I have enough experience to know that you don't make new feelings. So it had to be a replay. The feeling I felt, the feeling I chose that afternoon was clearly a replay of something that happened. So what I did, I went into a deep meditation with that feeling, kept feeling that feeling, let the feeling take me back to a memory that could only, in this case, could only have been in utero. And that's my mother is eight and a half months pregnant. The Japanese are landing on Java. My parents are with my older brother are fleeing into the mountains in order to get away from the Japanese because we didn't know whether they were going to take the whole country or whether they were just there. We we had nobody knew anything. But during that time, I can well imagine my mother saying, not a good time to be pregnant. In other words, I should not have been born. Now, you don't get that message verbally, obviously, but you get it energetically. And so how does the implantation of that belief 
prior to your birth manifest as a crazy day at the center where everything's going wrong. Because as, as I said earlier, the crazy day at the center was the symptom. Right. What made it so crazy, what gave me the emotional experience of that day was the core belief that I am so absolutely horrible I shouldn't have been born, and here is mm -hmm. proof. So look around you today and you can see why you shouldn't be here. So if you had worked out that belief already, then you, there still might have been a crazy day at the center, but you would have handled it with equanimity. Yeah, if that belief hadn't been uh, now, for example, it wouldn't have right. me. But now we're 16, 17 years mm -hmm. along since that day. And, and so even so-called upsetting events in, in my life don't affect me anymore because I immediately do the what is this for and how am I mm -hmm. feeling. So it always goes back to my feeling. Yeah. As we go along here today, we'll go through all the steps of this process. I guess we don't have to drag out all the things you did throughout your pre awakening life, all the drinking and the fighting and the, and all those things, all the, you, can, you can go into any of that if you want to, but you know, you really sort of went through a rough time for decades. And then what was the wake up call that began to get you out of all that? The wake up call was that it became unbearable. And for decades, as you say, I managed to survive. You can't call it anything better than that by ingesting a lot of booze and smoking a lot of weed or doing other drugs that made it bearable but there came a time uh, this was in the, in the late 80s where i was at uh, our safeway which i don't know if you have safeways yeah in the i think state. we do <laughs> not in this town but we have a, a big grocery mm -hmm. store and i had to buy some supplies for the restaurant that i owned at the time and i heard a weird animal growling and i thought that that's a strange sound to hear in the same place. So I looked around me, there was nobody behind me, nobody in front of me, it was me. At that point, I also had liquid brain, uh, which I found fascinating. Liquid what? But liquid brain is where you, you move your head and it feels like it sloshes oh, inside. Oh, is that a medical condition? I've never heard of that. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. sort of the final stages of alcoholism. It's when it's time to pack it in, pack it in or stop. So at that point, I stopped drinking uh, for a whole year. That was not a problem at all, even though I ran restaurant, had a restaurant and had 120 great wines on the wine list. I, I did, literally did not drink for a whole year. But I didn't do any work either because I didn't know the work yet. The, this was all in a vacuum, a spiritual vacuum. So then gradually after the year, I started imbibing a little bit again, a glass of wine here to half a bottle there. And eventually it, it turned again into two bottles a night. And... It became so unbearable that I said, either something has to change or I'm going to make an end to it at this miserable, absolutely miserable existence. I was lonely. I hated myself. I knew that everybody hated me. And if they didn't, I would make sure they did. <laughs> yeah. There's a great line that Baron Katie uses. It's when I walk into a room, I know that everybody loves me. They don't know mm -hmm. it yet. Now, mine was 180 degrees the opposite. When I walked in the room, I knew that everybody hated me. They didn't know it yet. And it didn't take me long. Augmented by that was what I can now, with some certainty, say was borderline personality disorder, which is a, a horrible, deep, deeply rooted condition that can be healed, but it can only be healed if there's an absolute agreement with the person who has it.
that this is what's wrong. Uh, we've had personality disorder people at the center. The ones that heal are the ones that say, I have a problem. The problem with that condition is that you don't know you have it. So I would say things that were unbelievably painful. But if you asked me, was it your intention to hurt that person? I would say, of course not. I don't hurt people. But I didn't know. So I, I did things to people uh, verbally as well as in, in other ways that were unbelievably cruel. But the person who was doing it was not aware of it. But at that point, I did become aware of it. And the loneliness and the disgust and the deep shame for who I was or who I thought I was uh, became unbearable. And it became a point of now, now something has to happen or I'm out mm. of here. So how did you know where to look for that something that, that might help you? That's an interesting question. Uh, years earlier, two years before that moment, somebody had given us um, A Course in Miracles. Now, the, the title pissed me off, so I wasn't immediately moved to open it. But when I did open it, I saw an incredible line. And the line was that sin is lack of love, as darkness is lack of light. And I thought, that's brilliant. I've always agreed with that. But then the next line had the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And I said, fuck that. I threw it in the corner. <laughs> that was it for me. But two years later, when I was at an inflection point of it's over or something is going to change, I opened the course again. This time, I didn't see any of the, of the offending language. I only saw the message. And the message that I saw immediately was that you are unchangeable. Who you are, the essence of who you are, is pure gold, is pure love. And that was a message I had never heard. And if I had heard it, I certainly had never let it in or integrated it to any degree at all. But it became an incredibly exciting moment when I finally realized that, that the self I made up, that I absolutely hated, wasn't me. Yeah. Now, obviously, most people listening to this, probably everybody listening to this, and lots of people these days have read things like that, read various spiritual literature and have heard that, you know, what you think you are is not what you are. The self is much more vast. It's entirely vast and infinite and all that. But just being exposed to that idea doesn't make it a living reality. Just the idea alone, I think, can be a, a, a candle in, a, in the darkness, I and mean, at least the, the pitch blackness is gone, but the room isn't very fully illuminated yet. Uh, and generally, people have to engage in some kind of deeper spiritual practice or something for to reach full illumination, to use that, that metaphor. So I imagine that was an eye-opener for you when you first heard that in The Course of Miracles, but I don't suspect that it turned your life around 180 degrees on the spot. It, it did. did. It did. Within a week, uh, within a couple of days, I knew my life was irrevocably uh -huh. changed. I always say that it, it was a great benefit that my self-loathing was so deep and so profound that there was no way out. Like a lot of people cruise around at a 7 out of 10. Yeah. That's not a motivation. A 7 out of 10 is bearable. Things are going pretty well. I was at a minus 348 out of 10. <laughs> In other words, it, it was up or down. And that, to me, was the biggest blessing of what I'd done to myself, is to make it so extreme that either you do something or finish it off. Yeah, I can relate. My life was 
pretty messed up when I had my turnaround. And in my case, I learned to meditate and that had a really profound effect right from the start. But 53 years later, I'm still changing. I'm still growing. Irene says I'm still messed up. (laughs) (laughs) Is she the evidence for that? (laughs) Are you the evidence for that? You know, like you said, for instance, 17 years ago, there was something rather that you, that was that whole thing about the your mother feeling like it wasn't a good time to be pregnant. You didn't realize that, but now you do. So obviously you've continued to be a work in progress since that initial aha with the Course Absolutely. in Miracles. Yeah. Yeah, I've been going actually the last month or so, I've been going through another deepening, and that is I've been watching documentaries on Indonesia and all the time after 45, Mm -hmm. because what happened after 45, we were still in the camps. And the white people, the Dutch, if they set foot outside of the camps, they would be killed. And so we were in in the schizophrenic situation where the Japanese, who were our tormentors and our murderers for three and a half years, now suddenly became our protectors. Just for a little background, the, the Dutch had colonized Indonesia 300 years before, and so obviously there was some pent-up resentment among the the native Indonesians for your presence there. Yeah, exactly. And so this was also the time where the Indonesia declared independence, and there was a civil war, and there was, the Dutch sent over a, a motley crew of soldiers to try to hang on to the colony, which was never going to work because the entire world was against colonies, and we thought we could do it on our own and sustain it. But it was an unbelievable time of enormous tension, which I was not aware of. There were almost more people killed, Dutch people killed, after the war than during the camp years. So it was an extremely dangerous time, highly stressful, intense, but that was my normal environment. That's what I grew up in. That was my comfort zone. And so when I get go into what happened after that, when I went to a foster home in Holland where I didn't know anybody and where I fought with the entire school at every recess, because I was very dark, I was deeply tanned, having lived in Indonesia, I was called a name. The whole school would surround me and I would fight with them. So my self-hatred has always been such that it attracted immediate evidence. I have another powerful example of that. When I was 20, I went into the Dutch army because you have to in Holland. It was not a, not a loving choice I made. But you have to. And so you arrive at the barracks for the first day. And an hour later, 200 people are after me to beat me up. How did they do <laughs> What happened? How did they do that? I have no idea. I have absolutely So you, you no had this idea. mob chasing you or something? They went after me, and, and then I was a highly uh, trained, very well-conditioned athlete, so nobody could mm. catch me. And if they had caught me, they wouldn't have liked to catch mm. me. But the interesting thing is that in such a short period of time, I could turn 200 people against me without knowing what I was doing. Wow. So the, the energy that I gave up, uh, gave off in public, was one of profound self-hatred. And everybody immediately said, and there's a reason. Mm. You are a total asshole. I imagine an objective observer of that situation wouldn't have seen it as glaringly obvious, but somehow that was just the chemistry that that you created around yourself and that people reacted to. Or were you just blatantly obnoxious and just 
pissing people off right and left <laughs> and being unaware that you were doing so? Probably both. Probably both, because my high school career was, was also something to be not proud of. I did grade eight three times, for example, which I think is still a remarkable success. But I was kicked out of every class within five minutes. Because you're such a troublemaker. Uh, I never knew. I never knew. I was blurting stuff out. And that was part of uh, the, autist, the autistic part of the borderline personality uh, that just blurred stuff out without knowing. Wow. And so I constantly got evidence for a person that I didn't know. I didn't know that person. And inclined to paraphrase Christ here, forgive him, Father, for he knows not what he does. I mean, you must have been so blind yeah, to your own behavior. Absolutely, completely, and, and not understanding. I've talked to Stace about this recently. Stace meaning your partner, when your I wife. Look, yeah. yeah. When I look back at, at the first, say, 15, 16 years of my life, I didn't understand anything. I didn't understand why I was there. I didn't understand where I was. Everybody feels an alien on this planet. That's that's part of the spiritual picture. But it was absolutely pronounced. I did not understand. And now, of course, uh, having gone full cycle, I understand even less. But now it's a blissful state. So. Yeah, we'll get to that. We have a lot to unfold or unpack in terms of how you underwent the transformation you did. Let's loop back to the point where you were saying that your brain was sloshing around in your skull and you realized you were kind of like <laughs> reaching the end of your rope and you cracked open the Course in Miracles and you saw some stuff that really impacted you and within a week you had changed a lot. Obviously, that wasn't the end of the process. So where did you take it from there? Well, then I had the great fortune of meeting uh, an amazing teacher named Sandy Levy uh, London, who now lives in the States, but at that time gave workshops in, in Vancouver. She became my first teacher and mentor. And taking her workshops back in 93 really started to solidify. But in those days, there were no circles. There was no follow-up. There was just you do a workshop. And, and because they're so incredible, you probably do another workshop a couple of months later. But there was no process being offered that provided sustained healing. And the sustained healing is what I needed to do. And so I took a whole year of doing nothing but. So I meditated. I worked on the six-step process, developed that, which was based on a process that Sandy had originally, and we modified it to be, from my point of view, more effective. And really devoted the, an entire year to becoming a bearable person. You know, one thing that always amazes me is that people can abuse their bodies so severely for so long, and yet at a certain point they have a turnaround and they change a lot and live very happy, productive lives. It's a marvel of the human physiology that it can take so much abuse and yet still function nicely once one changes their behavior. I always marvel at that. Yeah, that, that is true to a degree. I am paying the price. I had lung cancer two years ago. Right now, I have rheumatoid arthritis. I have all kinds of wonderful. Yeah, but your but your mind is <laughs> in pretty good shape. You know, your body's not behaving itself, but it's not too bad. Not well, too bad for a guy your the age. Body, the body says you've been an asshole, and here's, here's your, your here's your price. Right. My mind is delighted with where yeah, I am. Yeah, that's good. I remember hearing a story about Ramana Maharshi. I think it was no, or maybe it was um, Ramakrishna. He had throat cancer. Yeah, it was Ramakrishna. He had throat cancer, and one of his disciples said, "How are you doing?" He said, "Oh, you know, my 
it hurts, I can't eat, I can't swallow. And, and the disciple said, yes, master, but I perceive that you're in bliss. And he said, ah, the rascal has found me out. <laughs> yeah, but that's it. That's exactly yeah. it. So Ramana Maharshi would come at it from, from one angle. I've come at it from the what is this for angle. So when we were diagnosed with lung cancer, the only question in my mind was what, what is this for? It was interesting enough for years before that, I had said in circles and workshops that I wouldn't be surprised if my body would react to all the self-hatred I'd sent into it by giving me something like cancer, and there it was. Sure. But it served yeah. purpose. Actually, the question came in from Janet in Texas, which relates to the point we're making right now, so let me read you that question. Please clarify the meaning in Lesson 135 in A Course in Miracles. Quote, what could you not accept if you but knew that everything that happens, all events, past, present, and to come, are gently planned by the one whose only purpose is your good? Perhaps you have misunderstood his plan, for he would never offer pain to you. While you made plans for death, he led you gently to eternal life. And then that's the end of the quote. And then she, she says, who writes the script? That is a, a tough question for me to answer because I tend to not do that. Not do what? Do the, the script as written story. I see it much more organic and much more changing minute to minute. I've always had a trouble with the script as written because that to me... Deterministic. Uh, it smacks of predestination. Yeah. And predestination it is a fascinating idea, but it's never worked for me. Yeah, me neither. In fact, I thought I heard you say in one of your talks that we really don't have a lot of choice over our behavior, but then you kind of moved on, and 99% of everything I've heard you say implies that we very much have a choice over our behavior. So maybe that was just some an offhand comment or something, but you really do tend to emphasize free will and get your act together and so on. No, 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 no. I'll go back to uh, what you heard first is the right. We don't have to. Okay. As long as I don't recognize that who I think I am is nothing other than a set of beliefs, those beliefs will take action. They will make all these things. Okay, so then, then I we have, don't have free will. Yeah. There I have right. no choice. The only choice I do have is to recognize that that self doesn't exist. Okay. And that I made, I am the author of that self. So the free choice I have is to undo that self. Once that, uh, that self is being undone or being uh, relinquished, for lack of a better word, then the loving self will take more and more of a deciding uh, position. So then more and more, uh, the free will which is expressed is from the loving self, not from the self I made up. Okay, good. Well, that, that kind of works both ways then. So. If we're totally conditioned by these unexamined beliefs, then we are pretty much at the mercy of them. But then we we have some wiggle room in terms of some free will, which can enable us to unravel or reveal or elucidate those beliefs and dispel them. And then we have a tremendous freedom dawns yeah. in our life. Okay. Exactly. Good. Exactly. I have some notes here that tells people what they can expect by applying this uh, choose-again six-step process. Let me just read those. It'll just take 30 seconds, and then we will kind of go through the six-step process and what all the steps are. If you engage in this process, you can expect to embark on a journey of self-discovery, identify and release thought patterns that no longer serve you, 
banish shame and blame, relinquish the victim position once and for all, free yourself of your unconscious beliefs, nurture inner peace and serenity, enrich the quality of your life, transform your life for good, and finally, experience the freedom that comes from taking 100% ownership of your life. How shall we unpack this? You could elaborate on some of those, or we could begin to go through the actual steps that people take, or what What would you like to do next? In that list, are there any items that you have a question mark for? Oh, let me see. You know, I've taken a very different process in my life, which has been just the regular practice of deep meditation, a couple hours a day. And I'm sure it could have been beneficially supplemented with something like what you teach, although I never really did that. And it's kind of like life has been the teacher and, you know, everything Mm -hmm. I've gone through and marriage and various other, you know, things that one can't hide from one's idiosyncrasies any longer, you know, (laughs) you have to kind of work them out. But I'm kind of impressed and uh, and a little bit amazed when I hear stories such as I've been hearing from you about the degree of transformation that people undergo when they engage in a process like this, very often quite quickly, within a few days. For instance, one thing that really jumped out at me is that you've worked with some prisoners and, and uh, people who were heading for prison and so on. And you claimed, you felt that, you know, given that we have like over 2 million people in prison in this, in this country and it costs about 100000 a year to keep each of them there, you could empty those prisons to a great extent by having like one person trained in what you do work with maybe four people in the prison system and three of them would end up being able to leave prison changed and, you know, not inclined to commit crimes again. So I think what we would like people to understand here is, you know, what I'd like to understand even more clearly is how one can affect such deep transformation in a person through this process that you're, you're teaching. I totally believe it, it, it can. I think you're sincere in everything I've heard you say, but it's just so different than the path I took that I, I don't just say, oh, yeah, of course. It doesn't come as obvious to me as it does with somebody who's been actually gone through it. Yeah. I think that the first step and, and the most dramatic step is to recognize that uh, the teaching that you know in, intimately that this is a dream, which I had heard forever. But then what happened, I let in. I had heard it before, but I let it in that I was the dreamer. And that changed everything. Once I recognized that I was the author of this dream and that being the author of the dream, I can choose a different dream. Now, the jails are full of people that from early on had a very strong belief in in their guilt. Generally speaking, they come from broken homes, they come from poverty, they come from all kinds of difficulties in their neighborhood, at home, on and on, which, as we discussed earlier, was all their fault. So once you grow up with that level of guilt, which they did perhaps stronger than, than you did, then you have to have evidence. And the evidence was committing crimes. So once you know that and you start working with someone who's committed crimes, even murder, and you know that that person would never even dream of doing anything like that if they knew who they were, 
So you're saying that people commit crimes in order to kind of verify their belief about themselves, which they might not even realize that they they believe, but it's there and it it compels them to affirm itself by committing these crimes. Exactly, exactly. They got proof. Whatever you do in your life, whatever you do, if you look around everything you have, you have Irene, you have a wonderful home, you have to do this incredible program, that's all evidence for who you think you are. So that can be a good thing as well as a bad thing, depending upon who you oh, think you absolutely. are. All you need to do is look at somebody's life, and it will tell you who they think they are. Oh, okay. But sometimes it's carefully hidden. Like I have a good friend who is an incredibly successful businessman. He's in charge of 80,000 people. He makes more money than, uh, than God. Miserable. Yeah. Absolute deep self-hatred. So what happened? His ego decided, we're not going to show the people who I think I am. We're going to show them the opposite. But in order to do that, you have to embark on a journey which is unbearably difficult. Because to go against a core belief is, in the long run, not sustainable. The core belief will demand evidence, and it will get it. So even a person like that, sooner or later, gets to a point and says, I can't do this. I cannot keep faking a self that I'm not, that I think I'm not. I'm reminded of a song by Simon and Garfunkel called Richard Corey about this guy named Richard Corey who owned a factory. And the song is sung by a guy who worked in his factory and he was admiring how wonderful Richard Corey was and how he's wealthy and he has, you know, cars and beautiful things and all that stuff. And then he ends up, Richard Corey ends up killing himself. And, uh, the line is that I wish I could be Richard Corey both before and after. It illustrates the point, I think, that very often people live lives which seem glorious from the outside, but are not what they appear to be. Yeah. To go back to symptoms and and the core, we had a young man at the center a long, long time ago in the beginning where we had, when we focused more on substance abuse than we do now. Now we, we're, we've really shifted away from that, but in those days we did. And he was maybe early 30. A serious cocaine user had gotten into trouble with the law because of it. He was sent by his parents, and he was there for three weeks or so, doing incredibly well. And his mother came, and at the last breakfast before going off to the airport, they had completed their stay. He made an amazing statement and said, I will never use cocaine again. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. And I turned to his mother and said, have you decided never to have oral sex with the four-year-old next door again? I says, what the hell are you talking about? And I said, exactly. That is the difference. Once I'm healed, I don't have to say I'm not going to use cocaine. It doesn't enter my mind. Right. This woman, to have oral sex with the little boy next door, would never enter her mind. That's not who she is. But he had not healed. So he had to say, I'm not going to do it again. Yeah, sort of displaying bravado, like, you know, I got this beat. It won't work. It won't work. Because his self-hatred, he might not do cocaine, but his self-hatred had just begun to be eased off a little. That self-hatred will demand evidence. And the minute you get evidence, it starts building. So in the early stages, it's so important to be alert to, okay, that's evidence for a core belief. I need to heal that belief or I'll get more evidence. Why have you backed well, away from helping drug addicts since the opioid epidemic is so severe these days? 
That's a, a great question. It's mostly because of staffing. It is very, very, very hard work. And particularly when they come fresh and it, it, it's 24 hours a day. And you cannot find people that want to do that uh, very readily. So we've moved to equally significant healing processes for broken marriages, for bankruptcies, for depression, for crippling anxiety, things that aren't quite as physically demanding as well as emotionally. Right. So it'd be great if some clinics were set up using your, your system for, for drug addicts, but it's, you, know, you can only do as much as you can do. Yeah. And that's why we are sort of, uh, when we did it, when I did my research for our center, we really were the only center in North America that was not AA-based. And that sets us apart. Yeah, since you mentioned AA, my father was an alcoholic, and I'm somewhat familiar with AA, although he never joined it. But one thing that always bugged me about it was that, you know, they say, well, once, you know, you can be, you can talk to somebody who's been in AA for 30 years and hasn't had a drink in 30 years, and he'll say, hi, I'm Charlie, I'm an alcoholic. And I think, what, after 30 years, you're still calling yourself an alcoholic? I mean, can't this actually be rooted out so that, like that story you told, so that the thought of alcohol would never even enter your mind? No, it can be. I will never, ever, ever say anything negative about uh, AA. Right, it's helped a lot of people. it has saved millions of lives. I have dear, dear friends who are doing fantastic work based on AA. I just don't do it. That is not a judgment on anything else. So I just happen to believe that if I keep saying I have an illness called alcoholism, then I have an illness called alcoholism. And I so don't. You're reinforcing the I, belief in a way if you keep saying that. Exactly. I have some mistaken ideas about myself. So I could go to an AA meeting and say, my name is Dietrich. I hated myself so much, I almost drank myself to death. That I can do. But I will not put a label on any more than I will label you bipolar or any other label. I don't do labels. Labels are just the evidence, the symptoms of what you made up about yourself. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you might distinguish without insulting AA, it's a great thing, but you might distinguish your program from that program by saying that the goal of our program is to get yourself to a point where the seeds of that belief have been completely roasted and there's no way it's going to sprout again, so you don't have to keep reminding yourself of that seed. Exactly, exactly. We have an affiliate group in the States that is composed entirely of AA people that are doing our work. And what we've heard over the years from so many AA people that have been to our center, that this is the 13th step. This is the step after uh-huh, AA. Yeah. This is when you go deeper and you find out, where did it all come from? Yes, I did drink a bottle of vodka a day, whoop de doop Where did that come from? That's what I'm interested in. Not in what you do. I couldn't care less what you do. I also don't care what you feel. The feeling, the feeling is only important to help you Take the feeling, use it as a vehicle, back to an early memory when you made up a belief, and that belief has chosen that feeling. So you're just really trying to get down to the root of every, exactly. any and every situation. And there's a lot of approaches and programs and so on which delve into various problems, but which aren't radical enough. They don't go down to the root. Exactly. Yeah. 
And you feel that, and generally belief formed in early childhood is the root in every case. Yeah, that has been my experience, and that, that is my personal experience, but also my professional experience. Once you, you learn to recognize, oh, that feeling comes from that belief, there we go again. One belief I still work with on occasion is that I can lose love, which used to be an absolutely devastating belief, and I would make sure that it would happen. <laughs> And now it comes up and it's, oh, yeah, there's, there's, I, I thought I was done with that, but it's still there. It's not true. Well, wouldn't it be true, it has been in my experience, that generally you don't utterly root something out in one scoop. You shave away at it and get to deeper and deeper levels of it, and, and eventually it hopefully is entirely gone? Yeah. All right. I have a question here to get us going again. The question came in from Adam. Bukey, I'm not sure how he pronounces it, from Cork, Ireland. He says, I identify intensely with Diederich's story. What free practices can I do to at least alleviate some of the borderline effects he has described? Well, the practice itself is always free. The teaching of it by teachers might not be. So if he is in an area where we don't offer our services, then he can certainly buy the book. As you did, There's, from my point of view, there's enough information in the book to certainly get you going. Do you eventually benefit from having an experienced teacher? Absolutely. I don't think there's a discipline on the planet that doesn't have a teacher-student model. And not only to teach you what and how, but also teach you by demonstration and by the effect. So when you may, when you meet a choose again counselor, and we have about 12 or 14 of them right now, uh, you'll be amazed by the fact that really nothing disturbs them. You can say whatever you want to me, that you cannot get to me. There are people, very few on the planet that still can get to me, and those are usually are your family or your loved one, because they know you've attracted them because they reflect you. Yeah, I think it was Ramdas who said, uh, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your parents. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. You can shorten it to a weekend, you'll still be the same result. Yeah. Do you do anything by Zoom or anything like that? So if people are in Ireland or Poland or whatever, they can participate? Absolutely. We offer, if you'd have to go to our website, which is choose-again.com, we offer any number of online programs. In his time zone, we have one that I'm aware of that, that originates in London, which would be suitable for him. We offer uh, workshops, which wouldn't be free, but that's in the south of France in September, where I'll be for three consecutive one-week workshops. We also offer online counseling and therapy. So there's all kinds of stuff available. We are a charitable foundation. And that means that if somebody comes to me or to us and says, I absolutely need and want your help and I cannot afford it, then we work with that person. I have never turned anyone down. Well, that's great. I'll be putting up a page on, on BatGap about this interview and it'll have links to your website and any, your book and anything else like that. Here's a thing I copied down from when I was reading your book. One of the foundational premises of this process is that nothing outside of me can bring me anything I need, and nothing outside of me needs to change in order for me to be happy. And I think that's a deep principle. Perhaps we can uh, discuss that a little bit, because most people usually feel that 
they're chasing things outside of them because they feel that it's going to bring them what they need and that they need those things in order to be happy. So this kind of flips that notion around. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that up because two days ago or three days ago, I was watching a, a documentary on Asian Americans. And the documentary dealt, amongst others, with the influx of Philippine nurses, which happened in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and how they were marketed by the American government in the Philippines. And it said something like that. If you're not happy where you're right now, choose the easy way out and go somewhere else. And then it said, we can't promise you happiness, but we can help you chase it all over the That's place. That's funny. This is verbatim. Yeah. And that's what people actually are trained to do. If I don't like this marriage, I'll go to another one. What we're never told is that that next marriage will be exactly the same. What we have been told, and what you hear always, you always meet yourself. Wherever you go, there you are. And that's part of that teaching is that nothing outside of me needs to change because my entire experience is my interpretation of what happens. So what happens is always neutral. It doesn't matter how traumatic the world calls it. It's still a neutral event. And I either suffer from my interpretation or I rejoice in my inter interpretation. But I am the one interpreting. That's the power I have. Now, who is the I that I allow to, to interpret whatever just happened? And that brings me to the construct of how we have a model of the mind which is not scientific, it's purely made up, and that is there is a loving self, that's the unchangeable gold nugget. Uh, there's the ego, which is the set of beliefs. And then the third aspect of the mind uh, is what we call the decision maker. And the decision maker has to grow up, has to become an adult. And it has learned to listen to what the ego says, because the ego, the ego will immediately give you feedback. It will be absolutely convinced that its feedback is correct. The decision maker is going to have to say, yeah, I've heard that. I want to hear if there's another way of hearing this. And then you turn to your loving self. And the loving self is the unchangeable, eternal, formless, abstract, infinite self that you are, that I am, that we are. That self will always give another opinion. I had a good friend uh, a long time ago who was very involved in going to that loving self. She called it the Holy Spirit in those days. So she had conversations with the Holy Spirit that would tell her to do the most detailed things. And I was very impressed with that. I thought, wow, I'm going to try that. I'm going <laughs> to see if I can access my Holy Spirit. And so I did. And the only answer I ever get from my Holy Spirit is this is only love. Whatever I ask it, I get there's only love. And then I will say, well, yeah, I've got that. Is there anything else? There's only love. And that's really all I need to learn. So if I hear nothing outside of me needs to change, and my entire experience is within, and nothing outside of me can either bring me joy or hurt me, then I find that uh, an unspeakably empowering, freeing idea. And once I start practicing that, it actually proves to be true. Sometimes when people hear a, a statement like that, that you know, nothing outside of me can bring me anything I need, it can sound a little glib. You know, it's like say that to somebody who's homeless and starving. And he say, yeah, I, I actually 
could use a roof over my head and some food, you know, or nothing outside of me needs to change in order for me to be happy. Tell that to somebody, I mean, you know this, tell that to somebody who's in a concentration camp or in some really miserable, abusive circumstances. It's, it's natural to sort of see a need to change those things, perhaps in addition to doing whatever inner work one can do. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's, again, where uh, a story out of the camp waylays all those objections. And that, that's just the only story my father ever told me about his experience because he was in, in separate camps. From, I never saw him until I was three and a half, almost four. His story was that the day before liberation, so the day before the U.S. dropped the bombs on Japan, he was dying. He is the same size I am. I weighed 200 pounds. He weighed just over 100. So you can imagine there wasn't and much. And he left. had been a 200 himself before this. He was dying. He was picked up and thrown in a, in a hut where there was a pile of dead bodies. He was thrown on top of those dead bodies, knowing he was going to die. And then a few minutes later, somebody was thrown on top of him, who proceeded to have diarrhea all over my father's face. <sighs> And the only thing my father felt was love. Wow. And he said, at that moment, I knew God. And that is what that statement is talking about. Was he having a near-death experience or something? I mean, it, was, it wasn't characteristic of him to feel love under these circumstances, but he just had that reaction? He just had it. It, it wasn't characteristic. And, and unfortunately, or, or fortunately, he never lived according to that realization. Right, but he had that momentary breakthrough but he did have it and i love using that because it so waylays all this yeah but if you were in trouble you would feel that way yes you uh, would yes there's a potentiality there's a possibility of seeing it that way but mm -hmm. unfortunately most people don't see it that way of the millions and billions of people who are living in dire circumstances in this world i imagine only a tiny fraction actually have the insight to realize that statement but can you imagine what the world would look like if we if we taught our kids oh, that? Oh, yeah. I mean, if, if everyone could realize if that, it, yeah. If that became a foundational teaching for the planet, like whatever you have in your life right now, let's make sure you all have the basics. We can take care of that. We can. But everything else is from you. Everything comes from within. Yeah. Yeah, well, here's a quote related to that, also from your book. The essence of all these teachings is based on the same foundational premise, which is, quote, I am the author of my experience, and everything in my life is for me. It has been chosen by me in order to bring healing. Now, you know, again, that's a radical statement. Everything in my life has been chosen. So somehow you chose to be born in a concentration camp, and the other people in that camp chose to be there, if we take this statement literally. I never talk about other okay, people. Okay, so just you, yeah. or me, or any. People can translate this into their own lives. I imagine some people would have trouble accepting that, that they actually chose these things that are happening to them. Uh, I think uh, seven and a half billion would have, people would have trouble yeah. with that. I mean, unless we, uh, that unless is, we suppose that, you know, before this life, we're in some kind of pre-life arrangement where we chart out the course of our life and the events that are going to happen to us, which actually a guy named Rob Schwartz, whom I interviewed proposes that we sort of we set up the play with the major events that are going to help our evolution most effectively but otherwise it's hard to understand a statement like that yeah but understanding is not what i'm after okay because you cannot understand oneness you cannot understand love you cannot understand joyful acceptance of what is i don't need to understand it 
But once I experience it, it becomes true. So if we could actually teach ourselves, first myself, first of all, of course, and on ongoing, that nothing outside of me needs to change. Like everything that I need is within me right now. There's a line in the Course that, that deals with that really quite nicely, and it says, health is inner peace, and sickness is external seeking. Uh, that's a good point. So anytime I, I think, if only that were different, I would be better. Well, I have never met somebody who has not been very successful in orchestrating that difference. And God damn it, nothing did change. I wish I had money. Then they get money and nothing changes. They need more money. They get more money, nothing changes. So, well, okay, if I lost it, then I'd be happy. They lose it, nothing happens. Because the self is still there. The self chooses my experience, not the circumstances. And that's a huge shift. So once I recognize that my experience is entirely my decision, and I can I can have a decision, there's a section in The Course of Miracles that deals with that beautifully. It's called the setting the goal section, where it literally says, if you decide that happiness and joy is your goal, then whatever happens will serve that goal. And it says, whatever happens. So that could be the death of a loved one. That could be uh, my favorite dog is gone. That could be uh, 600,000 people dead from COVID, whatever it is. So then you, you become, uh, you get to a state where something happens and you hear yourself think or say, I guess that's how I'm going to be happy. And then you start looking, how am I going to be happy in this? What can I heal right now that would bring that state of happiness? Because I do need to heal something because right now I'm not happy. Which means I'm misinterpreting. I can relate to what you're saying. To varying degrees, I always view life as this fascinating play that's been written by a master playwright. And, you know, when things happen, they never seem arbitrary or accidental to me. I always think, now, that's interesting. Why is this happening? What is the lesson in this? You know, how, how can I learn from this circumstance? And one can move through life seeing it that way. Is, is that kind of what you're saying? Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's a very peaceful, nourishing. There's no urgency. There's no anxiety. There's no worry. It's simply a curiosity. Yeah, good work. How is this? How is this for me? Yeah, it's like you're yeah. watching a movie. How's this going to play out? Wow, this is really cool. You know, wonder. <laughs> yeah. Here's a question that just came in from Sean Smith from a place called Sichelt. I have no idea where that is. But the question is, when my mother tried to end her pregnancy, I was the one with whom she was pregnant, how could her not wanting me and actually attempting to terminate my life possibly be about me? How can choose again, step two, you'll explain what step two is, we haven't really explained that. How can that possibly yeah. be about me when it was my mother who made the choice not to love me? And of course, this guy wasn't even born yet. He had no control over the situation. To me, that, that is a completely irrelevant little story because he's not talking about him. So what I would want to hear from, it was a Sean Smith, uh, Sean said? Smith. What I would want to hear from Sean at this moment is, how do you feel? about the fact that your mother considered aborting you. And if he says, oh, I'm completely okay with that because it didn't happen, then there's no process. There's nothing to talk about. It's his mother's process. 
but not his. Yeah. Now, if he says, I feel terrible about that and I've never trusted women because I think they're all going to try to abort me and my relationships suck accordingly, then we have something to work on. But if he can look back at the story, because to him it's a story, he, he wasn't exactly aware of the planned abortion. If he can look back at that and be completely at peace with it, wonderful. If there's an upset in there, then you can ask, what did it say about me that my mother wanted to kill me? Because that's he made up. Yeah, I would actually ask, well, what makes you think she didn't love you? She might have been absolutely heartsick over the, the possibility of having to abort you, and but the circumstances were such that she felt like she needed to, but she loved you terribly, and, and therefore she didn't abort. <laughs> you know? yeah. That's another yeah. interpretation. Absolutely, yeah. But the key is to recognize that, that if I have no feelings around a story, there's nothing to process. And how often can we be witness or be part of an experience and not have feelings? That's a very rare state. It will become more and more your state as you do this work, because more and more you'll just observe and be joyful. And, and as you said earlier, in bliss, regardless what happens. But till that's the case, everything has something in it that I can heal. Something is being triggered. A belief is being triggered. Yeah, so what you're saying here is that not that going through this process is going to make you some kind of a feelingless automaton where you just don't have any reaction to anything, but you're, you will have a feeling, but it'll primarily be blissful. And then on the, the foundation of that bliss, I'm sure there'll be ripples of other kinds of feelings that come along, but bliss will be the basis. Is, is that correct assessment? Right. That's correct. So if, if my comfort zone is a, a deep state of misery when I start doing this work, that comfort zone is going to be raised steadily as I do this work. So from total misery, if you're minus 384 or whatever I said earlier, it starts rising to a 7, to an 8, to a 9. Then I get to the point where I'm completely intolerant of anything less than bliss. And I'm becoming more and more alert to, okay, what I'm only believing right now, I don't feel joyful. That means I'm believing something that's not true. What is that? Oh, it's that same thing. I can lose love. That's not true. I made that up. Back to bliss. It's funny that we're having this conversation because there have been many times at the center and in workshops where people absolutely verbally reinforce that they'd rather have a human spectrum of feelings than a permanent state of bliss. And that to me is such an utter mystery. <laughs> yeah. If they say that, I don't know if they've actually ever tasted real bliss. That could be it. Or they tasted it and believed that it wasn't for them and, and will never come back. They didn't deserve it or some such thing. Yeah, because yeah. if you're, let's say you're in bliss, you're, you're feeling just so blissful. Would you ever say to yourself, eh, I'm getting bored with this. I think I'd like to be miserable for a while now. I don't think you, you would if you were Sane. <laughs> you, you wouldn't, but it is hammered into us. I think it was Jung that said that uh, there has to be a shadow. For there to be light, there has to be a shadow. And I said, no, the shadow is my invention. The light is who I am. The light is unchangeable. The light is the truth. Yeah. I invented the shadow. I don't need the shadow. And I think that's what Vedanta would say, too, and a lot of the great spiritual teachings, that, you know, the nature of life is bliss, and, and you know, Satchitananda, that kind of word, and and uh, that if it's experienced as something other than that, it's that you're just not experiencing it deeply or clearly enough. Right. 
exactly. Yeah. Oh, you haven't used it for what it was designed. Yeah. A question came in from Patricia in your old stomping ground, the Netherlands. Patricia says, uh, I know from your teachings and the Course, Course in Miracles, that anger is projected guilt. I have been looking into the six steps to find the core belief under the anger. I can't find the, uh, the guilt belief. can't find the guilt down there. Could it be I copied the belief of guilt from my mother? See, if, if I'm not joyful, I've, I've done something that has removed me out of the permanent bliss that is my birthright. That's my guilt. I don't know what it is I've done, but I've done something. I'm no longer part of the oneness. I've moved into separation. Once I'm in separation, I will be driven by that foundational guilt. And, and it's not surprising that the Bible starts out with that. The first thing we do is do something wrong. And, of course, it was Irene's fault. She told us to take a bite of that apple, but you and I <laughs> took it. And once we've taken it, we're out of paradise. We're separate. We're no longer with God, God being everything there is. And we know why. We did something wrong. But in our case, we don't know what we did. But there is that feeling we've done something. And I've, I've, I've asked this on occasion at workshops. When you go through customs, are you completely at peace or is there a low grade of something about to happen? Because we all feel guilty. We all have that deep guilt and it comes out in different forms. Yeah, or if a cop pulls you over for something, you're not quite sure what, you know, it's like... <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, and of course, the more you do the work, the more the easier you'll deal with that cop and the more fun you'll have with that policeman because he won't know what to do with you if you're, if you're not in guilt. He'll be confused. Yeah. Huh. There's a, um, there's a word in Sanskrit, a phrase called pragyaparat, and it means the state of the, uh, the, the mistake of the intellect. And the, the teaching there is that somehow at some very primordial level, we make the mistake to step into duality, to, to mistake the oneness as duality, or to use the old Vedanta term, to mistake the rope for a snake. And then we make a great big fuss, you know, what to do about the snake, and you know, maybe I need to get some venom, anti-poison, and, you know, kill the snake, or call the police, or whatever. There's a whole hubbub. And yet, it's all about something which is a complete misperception. So maybe these words guilt and these other fundamental beliefs you have are related to that explanation, that there's just so this deep mistake in our understanding or perception of things, and based on a collection of those, and perhaps there's even one root one that's the, that's the source of, of the collection, uh, we go through our whole life making crazy decisions. Yeah, and not only that, but also treasuring it. Yeah. I don't know if you have children, but most people tell their children, you're special, you're different, you're unique, which is the foundation of the misery. No, I'm, I'm not unique. The beliefs I made desperately tries to make me into something unique, but it's not a joyful uniqueness. The only time I'm going to be joyful is when I drop that, when I drop that personality, when I say that's not who I am. Who I am actually doesn't exist. It's true. Those teachings I was referring to never say you're unique. They say, actually, there's only one of us. Myself is yourself, essentially. Exactly, exactly. And the self we made up is the one that's unique and separate. And that's the one I'll defend literally to the death. 
because the death will prove that I was right. Yeah, which brings in a good point. I'm sure you can elaborate on it, that the ego kind of fights to maintain its existence, and it feels threatened. It can actually feel threatened by the experience of oneness because its existence is jeopardized or undermined or whatever. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's why we commonly say that the only fear I really have is the fear of God. Uh-huh. Because in, in God, which to me is another, just another word for oneness, I don't exist. And so I'll do anything I can to have the, what I've been promised, the wonderful experience of the joining of, of God and sustain my individuality. And of course, you cannot have duality and oneness at the same time. It will not work. Yeah, I'm just looking at my notes here of chapter three of your book. Uh, these are good points based on what we're saying. Oneness is our true reality. An experience of oneness is helpful in remembering who we are in truth. Our worth is intrinsic. We are innocent in truth. Our unhappiness stems from the belief that we are separate. We can shift our attention from our ego self to our capital S self by training our mind and in doing and in so doing regain happiness, which is our birthright. And seven, love is all there is. I guess people listening have all heard those kinds of thoughts. The natural question is, all right, I've heard those kinds of thoughts. How do I make that a living reality? How do I live that 24-7? It's one thing to hear the thoughts, but I seem to be a long way from actually experiencing that all the time, which I'm sure would be wonderful, people might be thinking. So what would you say to them? Well, they might be thinking. So the first step would be, is that really what you want? Are you absolutely sure that being truly happy, which means nothing outside of you can disturb you, and you're no longer a victim, is that really the position you want to take? Because don't underestimate the unbelievably addictive quality of victim. We love the victim position. And a person might say, yeah, that's really what I want. But I bet you've run into many people who've said that and you think, no, that's not actually what you really want. <laughs> well, if they, if they say that's what I really want and, and they come to a workshop or they read the book and they start doing the process and I talk to them six months later and I said, are you doing 50 processes a day? And they'll say, no, I did one last week. Then I say, it's not what you want. It's like anything else. If, if I want to be a good tennis player, I have to get on the court with a partner, hit 2,400 uh, down the line, 2,400 cross court, 20 backhand down the line, 20 cross, etc., etc., all day long, every day. And guess what? After a year, I'm a decent tennis player. But that's not what people want. They want to buy some nice white clothing and a new racket <laughs> and go to the club and have a martini and say, we play tennis. And that's how they want to approach spirituality. But spirituality is not fun. It is a battle in the beginning because the battle is between the self I made up and the truth. And the self I made up does not give up that easily. It thinks it's fighting for, for my survival. Do most people experience that when they come to your center? Do they find that it's a battle in the beginning and then it gets easier? Yeah. It will only get easier if you persist. Right. But they're sitting there in Costa Rica at your center, so they have nothing else to do, at least while they're there. they Well, even there, probably some people apply themselves zealously and others are like, yeah, I think I'll go take yeah. a walk. Exactly. And, and we can tell, of course, who's doing what because it's so yeah. obvious. It's so the question that, that, that you'll hear me asking on the circumstance like that is, it, are you worth the effort? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is immediate and unequivocal, yes, then I know they're going to do it. 
If the answer is, yeah, I guess so, then you're not ready. Yeah. Another question I used to ask, but I'm no longer part of that within our organizations, when people said, we want to come to your center, I would say, have you tried everything else? Because if you haven't, in the back of your mind is, yeah, but that might also work. Or maybe I should do TM. Maybe that will work for me. Now, TM will work for you if that is what you do. Yeah, if you really do it. I mean, exactly. nothing works if you don't do it. Precisely. But what the ego wants to do is dabble. So the ego does the proverbial, have a beautiful field, and they dig 40 two-foot deep holes, hoping to get water. We say, dip one 300-foot deep hole, you will get water. And that's the commitment that is required. If I want to get the results, I have to put in the time. Yeah. There's no way around it. If you said to me, if I were a prospective participant at your, your center, if you said to me, have you tried everything else? I might say, no, but I mean, I don't have time to try everything else. I think I'm going to like your thing. That appeals to me. So I want to come and really try that and apply myself to it. I don't need to spend a few years trying every other thing first. You would probably like that answer, wouldn't you? That sounds clear. Yeah. That doesn't sound to me like you're shopping. Right. You're not a dilettante. Exactly. Yeah. Good. So people listening, feel free to send in questions if you have them. I want to make sure that we're covering all the points that come up in your mind. This might be a good time to start going through the six steps because it's called the six-step process, but we haven't really enumerated and explained what they are. The first one is I'm upset. The first one is not easy. Because if, if I look at uh, particularly the days before I started doing my work, I was fed up or upset 24 hours a day. So to acknowledge that I'm upset would, would have been a fairly meaningless activity. But most of us are upset a lot of the time without acknowledging. Mm, they don't realize they're upset. So there's a slight irritation, a slight annoyance, yeah. or a whiff of worry, or a pang of anxiety. We ignore it. We say, oh, that, I usually feel that around this time or she always talks to me like that, or whatever it is, don't sweat the small stuff. This teaches you, yes, the small stuff is unbelievably important. So learn to recognize when you're upset. And in the beginning, yes, that will be all day long. But if I don't take that step, I'm not going to get to work. So the first step is I'm upset. If you're willing to take that step, then we'll move to the most difficult one, and that is uh, step two, which says, this is about me. When you introduce that step, almost in any uh, so-called practical situation, people will be baffled. How can this be about me? So in other words, you're not upset by what President so-and-so said on TV or by what happened to the stock market or by what's going on in Israel or whatever. If you're upset by any of those things, it's about you somehow. It's something that's playing out within you, and it's a replay of something that happened, in, like in my case, 79 years ago, in your case, wild guess, 60 years ago, <laughs> whatever it is. So everything that I experience is a replay. If the previous occupant of the White House did or said something that triggered me, it was a reflection of something within me. So either... I had an old core belief that I'm a liar, that I'm dishonest. I have an old core belief that I'm stupid. I have an old core belief that nobody can ever trust me. I have an old core belief that if I don't run the place like a dictator, everything will go wrong. All those beliefs I used to have. And guess what? We put this wonderful person in the White House to reflect it back and see how far my healing has come. 
you had another friend of mine in there once, and his name was Bush. I couldn't stand watching Bush without getting nauseous. <laughs> now so he seems cute it, by comparison. <laughs> oh, he's adorable now. <laughs> but what I had to do, I made the conscious decision, I'm going to watch this guy every day on TV as often as I can, and I'm going to process what comes up. Till I am totally in love with Bush. Of course, I'm not in love with Bush. I'm in love with the essence of Bush. I've healed what stood between us, which was my core beliefs. So my core beliefs prevent me from seeing you. And what I see then is my core beliefs reflected in you, and I think you're just as bad as I am. So in other words, it's not like you're not going to, let's say if you're an American, that you're a Canadian, but if you're an American, it's not like you're not going to know who to vote for. You, you have a definite preference, but feeling hatred and all kinds of other such emotions are really not helpful, and they don't really have any bearing upon the, the worthiness or, or capability of this or that candidate. They just say something about you. Yeah, exactly. Any feeling I have around any of these issues is for me. It's chosen by me. Not, nobody chooses by feeling. I do. Yeah. So, so if I have a warm and fuzzy feeling when I look at Bernie Sanders and not quite when I look at some of the other people, then that is because I relate a little easier to Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And this is very relevant, obviously, these days, because this country, at least, is torn apart by political polarity. There's a real lot of nastiness not only in the country at large, but within families and so on. Families are torn apart by this kind of thing. Obviously, what you're saying here, I think, could be very helpful in, in healing that rift. Families say they're being torn apart by this kind of thing, but they're already torn right, apart. Right. This, this is, is just, just, this is just yeah, a symptom. symptom of it. Yeah. And now they look at that as if that is the cause for my wife votes Republican, I vote Democrat, and that's why we don't get along. No. I don't get along because I hate myself, and I think that's mm. you. Now, you also vote for the wrong person, which is just more fuel on the fire. But it has nothing to do with the other person. It has nothing to do with Trump or Bush or my wife or Democrat or Republican or, or a fascist. It has nothing to do with that. A fascist is something who has some beliefs that I don't agree with, but a fascist is still infinite love. Years ago, uh, I posted something on Facebook, which didn't go over very well. And I said, the only difference between Hitler and Jesus is that Hitler believes his thoughts. And Jesus does not. My thoughts are chosen by my beliefs. Yeah, I can see how that would not go over very well. But I, I also see what you meant by it. And it highlights the point that choosing to believe your thoughts can have very powerful ramifications. It's not just a yep. trivial thing, you know, it can it can decimate millions of lives if you're in a powerful yep. position. Exactly, exactly. I would say another way of distinguishing those two people is that Jesus, through whatever process he went through, came to know himself in his divine nature, in his in his full potentiality. Whereas Hitler was very far from that realization. So that's a key point. But it could be translated in terms of believing his thoughts. Wouldn't you say, in this case, taking his beliefs seriously is a symptom of the state of consciousness of the man? Or would you really say it's yeah. the cause of the state of consciousness? 
It's probably a combination, yeah. but a bit of if I've never learned to ask that question, what is this for? But always seen it as an attack on yeah. me. And always seen it as a here's another opportunity to lash out and to blame and to suffer and make sure that you understand I'm suffering because of you. Then I will use that. Till I've been told there's another way. So if if our friend Adolf had been at the center for a year, but you also have to take the other three and a half billion people who share his beliefs, and I'm saying that number because it's roughly the 36% in the US that right now shares those beliefs very clearly. Once we can take all of those in and start looking at what are you actually afraid of? What is your fear? Well, they're going to take this away from me, or I'm going to lose that, or they're going to rape my daughter. Whatever, there's always a fear. What is that fear? And if you ultimately get that at the deepest level, there's nothing to be afraid of, that the only thing you really are afraid of is what you made up, and at the deepest level, nothing can happen to you because you're not a body. So when Jesus said on the cross, forgive them for they know not what they do, he didn't mean they're killing the Son of God. They're killing the king of Israel, the king killing whatever. That's not what he meant. What he meant was they think they're harming me, but they can't because I am a child mm. of God. They're going to feel guilty and they're going to build an entire religion called Christianity or Catholicism based on the guilt of having done that. But it's a mistake. He didn't mean that. He simply meant to say, you know who you are? Your spirit. Let them do to your body what they want. You cannot be hurt. Yeah, you know, when you look at a picture of, of a saint like Ramana, for instance, or I was looking at one the other night of an Ananda Moima. I don't know if you know who she was, but there's this gaze that is so amazing and beautiful where it's like they're looking inwardly even more than they're looking outwardly, even though their eyes are open. There's utter lucidity in their soul or in the you know, in their inner awareness and just no clouds, no obfuscation. Whereas you look at someone like Hitler or somebody like that, and it's all outer oriented. There's no yep. introspection, no self-referral. It's just all exactly. outward. And they act blindly because they don't have this sort of inner awareness from which to act. And completely understandable. Like if I go back to my, the first 50 years when, when I was getting evidence all day long confirming my beliefs. I had no reason to question it because the evidence was obvious. If you're never told that whatever you have in your life is nothing but a reflection of who you think you are, then you won't know that. Then you will only follow, this is the evidence I'm getting. I have to change the evidence. Yeah. <laughs> I'm reminded of a saying, I, I forget who coined this. They said, it's easier to put on shoes than to pave the earth with leather. Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. The other one is uh, that it's all a projection. So we run to the screen trying to change the characters on yeah. the screen, which we project on it. So Here's another question that came in. This is from Amelia Grignan from Portland, Oregon. I love this interview and resonate deeply with Mr. Walsack's teachings. I'm wondering how you would address a writer-poet who has had nine to five office jobs for the last several years to, quote, support my creativity. These office jobs have never been fulfilling, but they're just a way to support myself and my cats. As a result, when people ask, what do you do? I inwardly cringe. Right. So what she hasn't learned to do yet is to ask, what is the office job for? She sees the office job as a negative. 
Well, in effect, it's a gift. So if you hear me say, I'm a writer, I'm a poet, I've given you permission to say, is that true? Is that who you are? And I would say, no, you're right. That's not who I am. That's what I made up. I like that. I like the idea that I'm a writer and a poet, but I'm not. I'm actually just a child of God. Now, a child of God can either be writing poetry or work in an office. What difference is big? What is my function? What is the purpose for writing poetry? And what is the purpose for being in the office? And once I get that the purpose cannot be anything other than giving and receiving love, then it makes no difference. Go back to my father on the pile of bodies. He didn't say, if I, if I wasn't on this pile of bodies, I'd be happy. He was happy beyond his wildest imagination under the worst circumstance. So if she can go back to work on Monday, tomorrow, and ask, what am I here for? It's not to feed my cat and pay the rent. There's something much deeper. There's a deeper purpose for me being in this office. And if I don't get that, I'll be living in discontentment till I get what my ego says I want, and that's to write and be a poet. Unfortunately, I have not practiced being happy. So the minute I start being a poet and a writer, I still won't be happy. Yeah, a few interviews ago, I interviewed Stephen Cope, and we talked about Dharma. And uh, Amelia might want to watch that interview, but he went through in his book examples of people like Walt Whitman and Mahatma Gandhi and, and many others who started out doing something for which we do not remember them, but it ended up proving to be a valuable life experience and a stepping stone to what they ended up doing. And I think we can probably all relate to that. I mean, you ran restaurants, and I have done all kinds of computer consulting and stuff like that, which at the time I didn't feel was my purpose for being on the planet, but I sort of saw it as a, a practical necessity at the time. And, and then just keeping my priority with spiritual development first, eventually things shuffled themselves around so that I have been able to be doing this full time, which is, right. you know, one thing led to the next. But if I still had to be doing yeah. that, it wouldn't be the end of the world. No, no. That's the, the beauty of, a, of an evolved mind. Because an evolved mind knows that nothing needs to change for me to be happy. Now, is that my experience 24 hours a day, seven days a week? No, no, I still have ego preferences. There's a reason we're in Costa Rica, <laughs> as opposed to Alaska. Those are all ego, pre I still have those. If I can't have them, then that's okay too. That is the result and that's the payoff of doing the work. The ability and the willingness to be at peace and to be happy is increased dramatically, regardless of circumstances. Okay, I think we did justice to I am upset. Have we really covered it's about me or is there a bit more we just want to say about that before going on to step three? Well, step two, the it's about me is, is so difficult and so challenging that I have never met anyone, including myself, of course, who lives that 100% of the time. But without it, the process ends right there. So without recognizing that nothing needs to change, it's, it's all about me. I am making this up. I'm the author of this dream. I'm dreaming this. Wow, that means I can dream something else. I'm hearing a voice in my head that's my voice. Even when we get people who have multiple voices, multiple personalities, 
they become peaceful with that as soon as they recognize all of those voices are their voice. They're choosing that. So once I know that, then I can go to the next step. But you have to be honest. Am I really willing to accept step two? And if so, you're on your way. If not, take a step back. I imagine that once you really master this process and that it's kind of automatic, if something upsets you, you can take a moment and run through all the steps, which we'll we'll continue to discuss, and uh, work the thing out and then get back to your day. Yeah, yeah. And eventually, I can say that now we'll we'll go through the steps, but this is the shortcut that anybody that's been doing this for a while will automatically use, and that is, I'm not at peace right now. That means I'm believing something about me that's not true. I wonder what it is. So it's not immediately obvious, necessarily. You might feel upset. Let's say you're driving in traffic and somebody cuts you off, which everybody experiences. Classic, yeah. yeah. Some people will just say, you know, they just, you know, drive appropriately and keep on driving and not fret about it. And somebody else might, well, the other day somebody pulled out a gun and shot a poor little kid, killed him when there was some kind of road rage thing. They finally caught the guy. I think what you illustrate is you have a choice to react. You cut me off in traffic. How do I respond? Who is the I that's going to respond? If it's my ego set of beliefs, I'll be pissed off. At the very least, you'll get a very firm finger. It gets worse, and I'll shoot you. My loving self would say, wow, Rick is in a hurry. Let me give him some space. Same circumstance, completely different experience. Both are available to me. Yeah. Which am I choosing? Which am I going to choose? Who is the I that I allow to choose? And ironically, the one that where you get all upset is the one that endangers your life and impairs your driving ability. Exactly. <laughs> and your relationships and, and, well, everything is a relationship. So that at that moment, that relationship with the other driver is one full of hate and resentment and anger. Yeah. And that affects me. So maybe we can use the traffic example to illustrate step three. Feel the feeling. Right. So in any circumstance, the ego assesses it and tells me what I should be feeling under that circumstance based on my belief. So the feeling can be anger, the feeling can be irritation, the feeling can be uh, uh, annoyance, or it can be an experience of joyful acceptance, in which case I've, I've done my healing. Whatever could come up at that moment is not going to come up because I've done the healing. But the feeling, I will never validate feelings. So it doesn't matter what you tell me. It can be the worst thing in the world. I will not react because I know that your reaction to it was based on a mistaken interpretation of what happened. So why would I validate your feelings? I'll say, fantastic. You're really pissed off right now. What's so good about that? Well, it's really good because that gives you an opening to take that feeling that you feel right now, that rage that you felt when you were cut off, is that a familiar feeling? And you say, yeah, actually, I felt that yesterday when my daughter came home late and she slammed the door while I was taking a nap. Oh, interesting. Now take it back to an early memory where you felt the same thing that you felt now, just now with that car. What's happening around you? And they almost always, 95% of the time, come up with an incident. Something happened. Their mother or their father usually, almost always, said or did something, and they had that same feeling. And then the question is, that feeling tells you something about you, 
what do you think you made up at that moment? So let's say we'll take your reaction to being cut off. You've taken that feeling back to a memory. Now you can ask yourself, what did he decide about me in that memory? So my sister came home, she slammed the door. I was taking a nap. That means she doesn't love me. That means I'm not important. That means I don't matter. That means maybe even so strong as I shouldn't be here. Insane decisions, but we make them. And once we've made them and we give ourselves opportunity to make them a few more times under similar circumstances, boom, now you have a belief. Is it necessary to do holotropic breath work or something like that in order to get down to what the underlying feeling actually is? Because a lot of times you bring up these examples and I think, well, I don't know if I would be able to locate the root feeling that's that's causing this. Almost everybody says that, Rick, but in my experience, if you stay in the feeling, you'll get there. If you acknowledge the feeling and then start to think your way back, you won't uh -huh. get there. You have to more because feel your way into it rather than think your way into it. Precisely. Because who does the thinking is the ego. And the ego knows what you're up to. Uh -huh. Because what you're up to is diminishing its value. Right. So it, it will take over and will say, no, I can't think. Of, you know what? I've blocked all my early memories. You see, I know you have for a reason, because you want to keep the self you made up. But we're going to unblock them. And if you follow that feeling, and it, it's written specifically to the earliest memory, it doesn't say what I mean by early. So if the earliest memory is two weeks ago, Whatever it was two weeks ago, you had that same feeling. Wonderful. That's where we'll do our work. We know that eventually you'll go back to much more primal, primal memories. Let's take another example. Like in your book, you, you told the story of a guy who was a welder and he had just bought a new truck that he needed for his job, a beautiful red truck. And his son, who had actually done a program at your center, took a screwdriver or something and made a scrape all along the entire length of the truck. And then the guy called you up furious and he said, what have you taught my kid? And the kid was using some kind of airy-fairy spiritual bypassing thing and questioning his father about what his core beliefs were because he got angry at the kid having scraped the truck. Right. Now, it sounds like a kind of a justifiable reason to get angry. How do you think you would have reacted if that had been your son and you had just bought a new car or truck or something and he had vandalized it in that way how would that scenario have played out differently now or 20 years well, ago? 20 years ago you might have been like the guy but now exactly now i would say what was coming up for you obviously when you did that you were not happy so what do you think you were feeling when you did that and so well i was really pissed off at you so could it be that, that you were not pissed off at me let's look at the feeling you thought you had about me what was that feeling and we'll go through it and we'll find out he was simply expressing his guilt. He was punishing me because he feels guilty and he was hoping that I would punish him. And then he got to be right about his guilt. So underneath everything is always guilt. Does that make sense? Yeah. So once you had gone through all that, do you think you would say, okay, now we've worked through that. Now here's a bill for the paint job. You know, you're going to have to take yeah. responsibility for this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But that's not punishment. Right. It's just responsibility, really. Punishment has never worked because the ego relishes punishment. 
But ego doesn't like natural consequences. And the natural consequence is you're going to pay for this because somebody has to pay for it. And I don't see why, why I should pay for it. And what we got both got out of this is a wonderful healing opportunity, which we used beautifully. And the bill is 1500 bucks. Right now, I give you $100 a month allowance. Let's reduce that to 50 and the other 50 will apply to the yeah. car. But there's never a reason to be upset. That's the key. It never, so it never there's really accomplishes death. anything, you're saying? Never, yeah. never. Well, let's think about now Jesus throwing the money changers out of the temple. He didn't just come in there all sanguine and say, hey, I think you guys maybe should leave. You know, he kind of like blew his top, according to the story, and, you know, tipped over the tables and stuff like that. Do you think he might have slipped up there a little bit, or was that a legitimate cause for anger? There's three ways of uh -huh. seeing it. One is he slipped up. In other words, he was not enlightened. He was not anywhere near as advanced as or we think he is. he's having a bad day. <laughs> he's, he's having a bad day. The second is it never happened. It's an ego story that we like to use in order to give a dig to the money lenders. In other words, Jesus wasn't even there. The third one is that he was acting. And I do that. Yeah. And it works with you. Why are you so angry? I said, I'm not the least bit angry. But I'm using it in order to get to you. That, to me, is the more likely answer, although I'm perfectly happy with it never happened. They made it up in order to build a little story and to make it more human or whatever. I'm okay with it never happening. Yeah, I've, you know, I've actually been around some pretty famous and significant spiritual teachers, and I've seen examples of them really blowing their top, and then something will happen, somebody will say something, and they'll just turn it off like that as if they had never been riled up and there's no there's no, no. residual kind of thing it's it was like it was appropriate and now it doesn't yeah it's the zen slap it, it's the idea of putting a little more passion and emphasis in what i'm teaching but i'm not emotionally involved in that it's an act okay so we have three more steps to go through but you were talking yeah. about punishment a minute ago and it might be good to come back to the criminal justice system there was a Michael Moore documentary put out a few years ago where he goes around the world. I think it's called Where Should We Invade Next? But he goes to Sweden or some such place and he shows what the criminal justice system is like over there. And the, the so-called prisons are almost like country clubs. I mean, they have TVs and they have a nice place and you know, they have a nice kitchen they can work in, all kinds of good stuff. And they have a very good success rate in terms of rehabilitation. Now in the U.S., is a different story, and there's this heavy punishment emphasis, and both the people and the politicians seem to feel like punishment is what is called for when a person commits a crime, even though it doesn't seem to work and we have very high recidivism rates. So how would you reflect on the criminal justice system and what your process could do to help reform it? What you're missing in that comparison is the fact that the U.S. penal system is profit-oriented. Yeah, that too. In fact, yeah, not all of it, but that uh, is, some of it is actually private companies that own these. Exactly, yeah. and, and that that is the, that lays at the foundation. I mean, nobody's going to give that up. If I can make fifty thousand net on putting you in jail, I'm going to put as many people in jail as I can because I'm going to be very yeah, wealthy. I'm going to donate to the politicians that make the laws that enable me to keep this business going. Precisely. So you have to remove that aspect of yeah. it. Now you and I are dealing one-on-one. -on -one. You're a thief. You've done repeated stealing. It's getting out of hand to where you've now been caught twice. This is the second time. We're going to have to figure out where that comes from. 
What do you get to be right about when you steal? Well, I don't have any money, I need money. Yeah, we know that, but it goes deeper than that. There's something else going on. What is the fear? If you don't steal, what do you make up would happen? Well, I wouldn't have the TV that I want, for example, or I wouldn't be able to steal the TV and sell it and then get cigarettes or get crack. That's true. What is the crack for? Let's look at that. You keep going deeper till you get to the, to the foundational, uh, I am worthless, I have no value. Nobody will ever love me. There is no love. Is that true? That's my experience. Yeah, it was my experience too, but is it true? Well, it'd be great if it wasn't true, wouldn't it? So if we work with people, and I'm, uh, I hope this doesn't sound facile and glib, but if we take a year of working like that with a, a common thief, for example, that problem be solved. Instead of 15 years, and what does he come out? He comes out a much worse criminal than, than he was when he went in. It's inhumane how we treat people. Locking someone up over a material damage is beyond words inhumane. They've had that three strikes you're outlaw in some places exactly. where you, yep. you might have a yep. little marijuana on you or something and you're in for life. Exactly. Yeah. Many years ago, this is now about 30 or 40 years ago, it's now different now. They compared the penal system in Holland with the penal system in Florida, roughly same size population. In Florida, there were 60,000 people in that time, now there's way more, in jail for long-term jail sentences. In Holland, there were six. Why was that? Because Holland assigned a social worker to each criminal. A lot cheaper than putting them in jail. They could still function. They were getting treatment. They were getting help. They don't do it anymore because, of course, we've become Americanized. But if you go back to a system like that, where you see that you're the thief, what you did was a cry for love. And I see it. I don't see it as a crime. I see it as a cry for love. How am I going to respond to a cry for love? With punishment? That is my cry for love. So now we have two people crying for love. Nobody's hearing anybody. In other words, now we're perpetuating the guilt. My guilt has been triggered by your behavior. Your guilt has been treated, but triggered by your behavior. We're both guilty. I'll lock you up. I don't have to look at you anymore. But if I see your behavior is a cry for love, I had a reaction because you actually stole from me. Wow. That was a fear on my part that I don't have enough, that there's a scarcity within me. Is that true? No, it's not true. I go back to loving you. I go back to knowing who you are because I know who I am. Now we can heal together for a lot less than a jail sentence. Yeah, I know Portugal had a really bad heroin problem, and they ended up legalizing drugs and taking all the money that they had been using to incarcerate people and just putting it into therapy for these people. And now they're, you know, they have so f many few fewer people in prison, and they also have a much less of a drug problem over there. Is right. And a healthier social right, environment. Right. So, as we've always said, and everybody's always saying beautiful songs to, love is the only thing that will actually heal. Nothing else will heal. Yeah. There's so many songs telling us we need more of it. Exactly. What the world yeah. needs now is love, sweet love. That's the only thing that there's just too little of. <laughs> yeah. Spare yeah. the actual yeah. singing. A nice question came in from Andreas Heisel in Basel, Switzerland. 
He said, I know Diederich's work and I think it's brilliant. He says that I choose my partner because we have the same beliefs and that a partner cannot be responsible for my happiness. Could he say something about relationships and how to make someone happy and about love and relationships in general? I find that very enlightening and important in his teachings. Well, I can't make you happy any more than you can make me happy, any more than you can make me unhappy or I can make you unhappy. I can do things that piss you off. And because you're highly trained and because I'm highly trained, you'll say, you, I just really got pissed off and I know that it's got nothing to do with you because I know that too. Wow, what was the trigger? What came up for me? Huh, that old belief that I can lose love. That's not true. I can't lose love. I made that up. I'm back with you. I can now look at you. You made that statement to me in order to piss me off. And when I'm pissed off at you, I react. That's what you're looking for. Here's one that came in from Jay in Calgary. I'm writing to you from a very difficult life situation. I've tried so many therapies. My life is in the drain on every level and I have truly given up. My biggest source of stress right now is that I feel I caused so much damage to my career and professional life. I don't know where to begin or where to start. Where do I start? This is like something you could have written 20 or 30 years ago. <laughs> where do I start? Exactly. Well, you start by saying there has to be another way. This is not sustainable. If it stays like this, if I stay interpreting everything the way I interpret it right now, I'll finish it off because it's unbearable. Having said there has to be another way, the other way will become apparent, which may be why he's on this program. So if he's actually listening, which he is, and taking it in and recognizing that the situation he is in is a learning and healing opportunity, even though it feels absolutely devastating, it still is a healing opportunity. He can say, I need to distance myself from this relationship for a while. I need to go back in and do my healing. I need to be able to then see my wife's situation as a cry for love. I need to see that she is going through a process that she needs loving help with. That's not my job. I'm not her therapist. But my job is to see myself, to see who I am. And once I see who I am, I will see who she is. And there won't be a judgment. There won't be this shouldn't have happened. Sounds like you'd be a good candidate for one of your Zoom classes. Yep. Yeah, and uh, by all means, go to the website. There's so many, particularly thanks to COVID. COVID has been an enormous blessing to <laughs> yeah. us in so many ways, both individually and collectively as an organization, because we've discovered that our reach is not limited by people being able to come to Costa Rica or a workshop in, in Washington or Vancouver or France. We can do it online, and it's unbelievably effective. To go back to our friend at Calgary, I recognize he is in a very difficult position, and what he can do, as you suggested, go to the website, find a circle. Circles are immensely powerful environments. Circle means like a because, group that you can participate in. Okay. Yeah, an online group. I'm not sure whether we have live circles in Calgary. I'm not familiar with that right now. So he can do that. He can also find one of our counselors that can help him out. Okay, good. Yeah, how does that work? I mean, you must have cases where one member of a partnership dives into the work and the other isn't even interested. Do they end up yeah. growing closer or farther apart when that happens? Uh, they end up growing closer, 
provided the one that's doing the work is actually doing the work. If the one that's doing the work is only doing it to manipulate the other and to make sure that they're better than they are, look how wonderful I am. I'm actually processing and you're yeah, not. They rub the noses that, in it. Then it won't. Nothing will change. But if I heal, then I will see you as who you are, which is love. I will no longer see your beliefs reflected because they're not within me anymore. In other words, the mirror is clean. It's gone. Okay. So I want to accomplish several things. We can go a little long if that's okay with you. But I want to ask a few more questions that have come in. And I also want us to run through steps four, five, and six. We don't have to take an hour at it, but let's just go through these things fairly quickly um, so, mm-hmm. while well, do, doing justice to them. So this is from Marigi Stad... Oh, did I? I don't think I asked this one. Um, Stadegard in Amsterdam. She says, practicing the course of mir- course in miracles, focusing on the meaning of everything that is offered to me, um, go out of blame of guilt. It feels somehow like stepping out to watch and learn, but then it feels like I fail to take responsibility. It feels passive. Does this make sense? It doesn't make sense to my experience. I can only listen to her and recognize that this is her experience. Then I would follow that up by saying, is that feeling of being passive familiar? Is that part of your pattern? Is that how you live your life? Do you live your life as an observer, as a bystander? Or do you live your life as the center of whatever happens? In which case, you couldn't possibly be a bystander because you're the author. So it's a shift from bystander to author. If I, As long as I stay a bystander, I can smile and look serene, but nothing will have been healed. I have to get dirty. I have to get in there. Okay, good. I'll move along. Obviously, we could elaborate on each of these things, but uh, I just want to make sure I get to ask them all. This is from uh, Martin Klein in Germany. Currently, I work by myself, and I try to take the triggers from outer experiences to look at the emotions that come up. Often, when pain occurs, it gets triggered by the thought, I lack love, I don't get love, etc. Do you have advice on how or if to deal with the emotions or the thoughts when they come up? Absolutely. So that gets us beautifully to the next step. So we've done the feeling, we've gone through the experience of where I first had that feeling, what happened at that moment, what did I make up about myself? Well, he made up, I lack love, I'm not lovable. The next step is the forgiveness. And the forgiveness is from the decision maker to the loving self to say, forgive me for believing that I cannot be loved. And the answer then is, that's not true. You are love. Nobody needs to love you. You are love. That love is unchangeable. That's the essence of who you are. Remember, forgive them for they know not what they do. I am pure love. Nothing can affect that. And then the last step is the, the completion, which is forgive me for forgetting that I am pure love. And then, again, the loving answer is, thank God that is true. You are love. I'm glad you remembered. And that's complete. Then you go back to the upset. In the beginning, the upset was a, a 9 out of 10. Now you go back to the upset. So how does it feel now? Well, it feels like a 2 out of 10. So it's reduced considerably. Let's go back again. That 2 level is not acceptable. We have to reduce that to a 0. So what is still left? What are you still believing? Maybe it's the same belief. Maybe another belief crept in 
that he wasn't aware of before. And then you do the forgiveness again. Whatever the belief was, that it could be the same belief, but it could also be another one. So in other words, if you really tap into your true nature as sort of an ocean of abundance, an ocean of love, then you're not going to be reliant upon or seeking for external love. It may come. In fact, people will probably love you a lot more if, if you're established in, in that yep. fullness. But it's sort of like adding something to something that is already infinite. Does it become yep. more infinite? My cup runneth over. It's full. Literally. Yeah. No, it, it becomes more and more a confirmation of the truth. So every relationship, every interaction then uh, is always a reflection of who I think I am at any given state. And if I'm healed, then every interaction will be one of love, will be a joyful experience. So I think we've covered step four. Remember my ancient feelings? And the belief I right. made up? We pretty much covered that. Step five is establish my judgment of myself. Have we covered that adequately? Yeah, so that in, in his case was I'm not lovable or I'm not, I'm not good enough. Nobody will love me. That's my judgment. That's my core belief. The forgiveness for that is forgive me for believing that nobody will ever love yeah. me. And then step six is embracing the absolute truth about me. Yeah, so that is forgive me for forgetting that, that I am love, infinite love. Nothing can change that. Nobody can take that away. Nobody can add to that. My worth is intrinsic. You can say my worth is established by God. I am a drop of water in the ocean. I'm part of the ocean. No, says the ego, I'm that wave. Do you see that wave over there? That's who you are. No, I'm not, because five seconds later, that wave is gone. But we're so attached to being individual and important and significant and want to be seen. We want to be seen as that wave. But we're still the ocean. Nothing changed. Yeah, it's funny. Um, there's such um, security and peace in knowing oneself as the ocean that it, it almost seems ironic that people try so hard to maintain their distinctness as waves. You know, if you just relax into into your true nature as ocean, then everything you hope to gain by being a, a really great wave is accomplished. Yeah, because we just don't trust the ocean. We don't trust the absolute universal oneness that you and I are the same. We hate that idea. Perhaps the problem is that you have to undergo some discomfort to make this transformation from being locked into being a mere wave to realizing yep. your nature as ocean. It's like when Chuck Yeager first broke the sound barrier. They didn't know exactly what was going to happen. And as he approached the speed of sound in his jet, it started to shake. And, you know, it's it like, was the jet going to fall apart or what? But then he broke the sound barrier and it all became smooth. Beautiful. So it's like you have to yep. go through this turbulent period as you process this stuff. And perhaps people tend to want to keep their attention outward in order to avoid having to face that, that, but if you do face it and process it, even though it might be initially more uncomfortable, once it's processed, boom, you've broken the sound barrier. Yep, absolutely. And, and the Course has a, a great quote that ties into that very exactly, and it says, discomfort is aroused only to bring the need for correction to awareness. Perfect, yeah. That's the only purpose. Time to do some work. I'm upset. Time to get to work. <laughs> Okay, one final question. This is from Jackie in Napier. Her question is, 
love to know more about the child's experience and how negative beliefs must be played out at a later stage. As a teacher of young children, do you have advice to address and alleviate children's personal pain or false beliefs? I mean, this is a good one because if teachers could help to nip that in the bud, the formation of, of these beliefs, it could prevent yeah. a lot of problems in the long run. And Andrew, who is uh, one of our, our colleagues and, and a dear friend, wrote a beautiful book called What They Don't Teach You in Prenatal Classes. I'm not sure if that's the exact title, but that's that's what she deals with, is how we could work with kids at a very, very early age and start teaching them that what they did, for example, right now, you broke my favorite vase. In itself, that doesn't mean anything. But if I have a reaction to it, I want to show you and teach you what my reaction was and that my reaction was based on a mistaken belief about me. I needed that vase. That vase was evidence for my importance, whatever it was, but it meant something. I'd given that vase meaning. It has no meaning. And you are triggered because you broke that vase. How did you feel when you broke it? Was it really an accident? Were you being careful? Etc. So it becomes a process for the child, but there is no right or wrong, and that's the big shift. So to really recognize that everything is always for your healing, doesn't matter what it is. You broke my favorite vase; that's for me somehow. I'll figure out how. But you did it. If you did it out of intentional carelessness, and it's very difficult to tell the difference sometimes, you did it in order to get a reaction out of me that confirms a belief about you. So you already have a belief you're guilty, and you break the vow so that I can reinforce that for you. Yeah, this is good stuff. You, know, you can see how if it were part of the educational system, part of the prison system, and you know various other systems, working with homeless people, all kinds of things like that, how so many of these problems could be nipped in the bud, you know, cut off at the source. Yep. And not only this, I mean, there's other good things, meditation and, and other practices that people use in these circumstances, working with soldiers who have PTSD, for instance, they've done great work with meditation. I'm, I'm sure your stuff would be good for them too. Yep. So we really need to shift as a society, I think, in our understanding of how to help people and in, in our priorities. And rather than just bemoaning the fact that we don't have enough money to pay for all these problems, let's see about diminishing the problems by getting down to their source. So, so, so there's yep. really not so much that needs to be paid for. What would it cost? It would cost us the entire world the way we see it now. We'd have to let go of anything I think is true. And that's a tough one, because what I think is true is true. I've lived it all my life. But it obviously to isn't really working, this, the, the world. To recognize I've been wrong for 55 years, wow. <laughs> what a nice thought. Well, better than continuing to be wrong for another X number of years. It wouldn't have happened. Great. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. This has been a good discussion. Thank you, Rick. It's been a real pleasure. And, that, and uh, I really honor you and I honor the commitment you have to bringing all these messages from such a variety of people out to others to, to make it accessible. It's an amazing, amazing well, life. I love doing it, as I'm sure you can understand, because you love doing what you're doing, and we're yeah. all doing our bit. Wonderful. So thank you, and love to Irene, and, and thank her for choosing me. It, uh, I really appreciate it. I will. <laughs> he says thank you, and thank you for choosing him.
She got the credit. In fact, I was, <laughs> I was saying, yeah, hey, it's time we interviewed Gabor Mate. And, and she said, no, I kind of like this guy. So let's, let's do him. And I said, all right. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Yeah. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Okay. And, and thank you again. And thanks to those who've been listening or watching. Obviously, people watch these things out of sequence, but if you happen to be watching them in sequence, next week's one is with a woman named Tara Springett, who has been a student of Zogjen, and also says that she has some very effective ways of helping people who are having Kundalini episodes, which comes up quite a bit, actually. People often get in touch with us and say, I'm going through this incredible thing, and I don't know what to do. So hopefully she'll have some uh, helpful advice for those people. So again, those who are listening or watching, explore the menus on BatGap and you will see what we have to offer. Basically, it's this, interviews, but there's some things in the menus that you might find interesting. So thanks a lot, and we'll see you for the next one. And thanks again, Diederik. Thank Take you, care. Rick. Thank you, Irene. It's a pleasure. Bye-bye.